understand that we have an incredible God, but we have an incredible heritage as Christians. We are, as Ian said right at the beginning, grafted into this thing called the people of God, Israel. We've been grafted in as people that were way away from God, pagans, way away, never heard of him. As Christians, we've been grafted into that family of God. And sometimes we forget to, to, to find out about that heritage and, and live in the light of it. So I'm not going to go into politics this morning. I'm not going to talk about the Jewish-Palestinian issue. I'm not going to talk about a lot of things, really, apart from the fact that as Christians, I want to open up our eyes and, and, and inspire you to dig down into that heritage, to find a little bit about it. Now, I'm a gardener, and at the moment, there's a bit of frost on the ground, and there's a crust right on the top of the ground. And a lot of people will be put off from gardening because there's that crust. But if you get your mattock or a spade, you can whack through that crust, and underneath you find good, rich soil. And I think as Christians, there is this sort of popular Christianity which forms a crust, and many of us don't break through that. And we live on the surface on that thin crust, but deep down there is amazing depth. And I'm going to try and bring to our light, or to our understanding this morning, a little bit of the things that stop us from digging down deeper because of our cultural perspectives, and hopefully unlock some of those riches that are in the Jewish gospel. Now, last week I was incredibly challenged by what Rachel was saying about how our cultural spectacles that we wear. Um, change our perspective of, of our faith. She was talking about hedonism, consumerism, and individualism. And this culture we live in opposes God's values in many ways. And it can lead to persecution, which was the last talk I did. Another difficult one. But I think worse than persecution, it can lead to a watered-down version of the gospel and a faith that can be shallow, hollow, hypocritical if we're not careful now I've got a few Bible verses but I haven't had um, internet so I haven't had the time either to put them on the screen so if you want to look up Galatians 1 verse 6 I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is no really no gospel at all and there is this temptation for us to be swayed by our culture and to follow a different gospel. So the challenge this morning is, what gospel are you following? And for myself, I have learned there is some unlearning to do because of our cultural biases. Now, Romans 12, verse 2, if anyone wants to look at that one, we have Paul, who's one of my favorite uh, writers in the Bible, urging us, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And this is the punchline. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, Marie was mentioning the fishermen this morning, and I'm a fisherman. I'm, actually, I had a job in Israel as a fisherman catching fish. And I had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning before the sun came up to get into the lakes, to get the fish out of the lakes, otherwise they would spoil and go off. But the fishermen that Jesus called as his followers were actually good fishermen, or they thought they were, till they met Jesus. He proved them wrong. They had a night and they didn't catch anything. And he said, cast your nets on the other side. They were preoccupied with fish, 
But Jesus' end goal was to teach them how to catch men. We may think we know the gospel, but I have certainly been challenged this week as to what my understanding actually is of this gospel and to what extent, more importantly, I'm living in the light of that true gospel. Are we prepared this morning to have our uh, thoughts, our perceptions challenged? I hope so. So, there are some pretty big obstacles, I think, we need to clamber over or dig down in order to understand the true gospel in more depth. So the top three challenges I'm just going to talk about this morning are, first one, overcoming these culturally embedded assumptions that throw us off course. So there's language barriers, translation barriers, there's cultural racial barriers. Second one is just about understanding the Bible better. And it can be incredibly daunting. I was very impressed by these girls this morning. Being able to, I wouldn't have a clue about what the first five, let alone the first um, whatever, however many they could reel off. Um, but sometimes we can't see the wood for the trees, can we? It's so many separate stories going on that it's difficult to pick out the bigger picture. So this morning I'm going to try and grasp that simple thread that is the gospel that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation, the bigger picture, and also the prophetic framework, which I think is fairly simple, which will help us hopefully unlock the whole of the Bible. So the second one, understanding the Bible a bit better. And the third thing, which I think is the most important, is to make sure we put the gospel into practice. It's no good knowing all the books in the Bible. It's no good knowing all the stories. The point is that we put it into practice. The Bible is like a map in itself, it's fairly useless. It's only useful if you're actually following it and using it to get from where you are to somewhere where you want to go. So, cultural barriers. Now, as I said last week, I was incredibly challenged, and I'm only just starting after that to realize how much of the gospel I'm at risk of, of losing because of my Western goggles that I've got on all the time. I think we've surgically removed the Bible out the original Jewish framework and I have lived in Israel like I said for a while I have known Messianic Jews and it's my uh, experience that they seem to have a far broader and deeper understanding of the gospel and who the Messiah really was Messianic Jews are, are Jewish Christians so I've got some fairly uh, crazy things to say about our culture and, and Christianity and how it's developed so um, don't just take my word for it actually go and look at these things up yourself and seeing if what I'm saying is, is ridiculous. But unlike Messianic Jews, we don't actually worship on the Sabbath, which is a Saturday. Um, we worship on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is probably more to do with the assimilation of Christianity into, a, into the pagan religion of the Romans uh, than it is to the Holy Spirit's guidance, perhaps. It's also shocking to discover how much traditional Christian religious symbolism comes from pagan rather than Jewish origins. So bishops' mitres, their hats are copied from Egyptian fish gods. I don't want to, in, I don't want to insult anyone's religious views, but um, the Roman Catholic communion discs are actually shaped around like the sun. Um, old churches, as we know, occupied previous Celtic or pagan sites where the rings of trees were worshipped the um, yew trees, Taxus Baccata as a gardener. Um, 
Now, you probably know this, but Jesus wasn't actually born at Christmas. He was born at Tabernacles, which is an autumn festival for the Jews. Um, it was the Catholic Church that uh, wanted to put Christmas instead on top of a pagan festival, Saturnalia, which is the midwinter festival um, that was all about worshipping trees, giving presents, wild revelry. Um, it's amazing how our views about Christmas um, are affected by that. And of course, Easter is not a Christian festival. Um, the, again, the church, Catholics and Protestants moved away from the Passover feast, which is the full moon Jewish feast, and we moved to, yes, a pagan festival, Easter, with Easter bunnies and Easter eggs. So again, um, moves us away from the original roots of the gospel. And the Roman Catholic and Protestant churches, shamefully enough to say, persecuted the Jews and detached themselves from that original heritage. And actually those festivals, tabernacles, which is where the Jews lived in tents to remind them of what happened in the past, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, thinking of Barry now, all these have prophetic symbolism and actually help to unlock who Jesus was and what he fulfilled. And because we've gone away from that, we miss all of those implications. These pagan cultural influences can't help but subtly shelve our view of the gospel and our, inhibit our ability to dig down beneath that crust sometimes to the incredible depths of this Jewish gospel. And we need to be aware of them if we're going to overcome them. So, living in a, a materialistic post-Christian culture, we can face further barriers to understanding the gospel and also when we try and share it with those around us. So I'm just going to look at our concept of sin, which is a, a Christian jargon word, and death. Hopefully you all know about that. But I suspect, you know, even if our friends actually know what the word sin is or have ever heard of it, it's misunderstood. It's seen as outdated and no longer relevant. Um, rather than understanding its real meaning, it's now become more associated with pagan symbolism than biblical truth. So sin for your average person it's probably all about the fun stuff in life that a free spirit longs to experience and that fuddy-duddy, self-righteous, religious hypocrites want to stop you from doing. Or, sin is the naughty but nice things you want to do and an old-fashioned, medieval, angry, capricious, impersonal God wants to stop you or punish you for. However, getting back to the Jewish meaning of the word sin, it reveals the truth about a God of love who created everything perfect and mankind as the pinnacle of that creation. And our role was to bear the image of God in the creation and to have a role of priests in the world to bring the blessings of God to the world, to the plant and animal kingdoms and those around us and to take care of the planet. So sin in its original context meant to fall short or missing the mark. It's actually a word that comes from archery. If you miss the bullseye, that's sin. You've missed the mark. Sin came in as a result of the fall, and it means missing the mark, missing the high calling that God wanted to put on your life. And as a result, as a result whatever we put our hand to will be blighted with a degree of failure, corruption, selfishness, and greed. Because sin entered the world, mankind fell out of a relationship with a loving creator and we ended up suffering through childbirth, diseases, death, 
Sin for us is not only the individual things that prick our consciences, it goes to our very core of who we are. The corruption that enslaves us degrades, decays, corrupts and eventually kills us and renders our spirits dead because it cuts us off from our source of life. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. And sometimes we can go on this endless cycle of saying sorry to God because today we've become a sinner. But actually, it's the other way around. We sin because we're sinners. We can't help it. We didn't start out perfect. Um, uh, Some people think we do, but we don't. We all started out pretty rotten and dead spiritually, sinners to the core. Our parents didn't really need to teach us how to be naughty. They have to spend a lot of time trying to teach us how to be good. And poor parenting could result from believing your child is a little darling. And you think they're a little darling, but everyone else thinks they're a little monster. And there is actually, I believe, a sin monster in each of us that needs disciplining and bringing under God's authority. So sin is a lot more than what we perhaps think of it. The bad news is, of course, that sin brings decay and death. However, the good news is that Jesus brings life. And Romans 6 and verse 23, classic verse For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So that was sin. Let's look at death, because I've been challenged about this. Now, I didn't realize this, but one of our cultural, cultural ideas we're exposed to is actually from the Greeks, a guy called Plato, a philosopher. And he came up with this um, philosophy that there is a great divine plan in the universe, where sinful souls are rescued and taken to be with the gods. And I think, looking back over my life, that a lot of Sunday school level theology and gravestone inscriptions, and if you read the obituary columns in the local newspapers, they are all based on this sort of platonic principles about, you know, going to heaven. And actually, it's not really, not really that biblical if you dig down deeper, and it's not uh, the Jewish gospel. It's all about clouds and harps and doesn't appeal to me and I don't suppose it appeals to many people if that's what eternity looks like. You just go to heaven. Whereas if you look at the Jewish and biblical concept of salvation, it's contrary to this. Um, The catastrophic effects and events of the fall will be reversed. The original created world would be restored back to a state like the Garden of Eden, access given to everyone again to the tree of life and death to be no more. The divine presence of God would also inhabit this land, creation itself as a type of temple, humans again bearing the image of God and again having the priestly role in the center of God's recreated paradise. And one day the Jews believed this promised land would fill the whole earth. Very different picture of what happens after we die. So next time you go to a funeral service, see which message, which gospel they're preaching. Is it the Platonic Plato philosophy about um, rest in peace, um, go to heaven, or is it the Jewish gospel looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where everything will be made right, where living on this earth 
as we were meant to. So challenging, but what, what is your current um, understanding of God's plan for eternity? What are you basing it on? So the second thing I want to talk about is understanding the Bible a little bit more. And yeah, it's incredibly confusing. Um, I, when I went to Sunday school years ago, there was this song called Read Your Bible, Pray Every Day If You Want to Grow. I won't sing it, but it's easier said than done, isn't it? Um, reading the Bible can be incredibly hard, confusing, and off-putting. And I like reading. So if you don't like reading, um, where do you start? So I just want to throw a few things out to hopefully help you a bit. And the most important thing is context. So when you read it, you have to try and understand who it was written to first. That includes the geography, and that includes the culture and the philosophy of the recipients. And it's only after that that we really got hope to interpret into our own situations in a completely different time, in a completely different culture, in a completely different geographic area. And we need a heck of a lot of guidance from the Holy Spirit in that. So it may be incredibly obvious, but it's amazing how often we forget this. The Bible is a Middle Eastern book. And it's a Jewish book. It's not Western. It's not focused on Wales. It's not focused on the UK. It's not focused on the United States. It's focused on the Middle East. And they, the style of writing, the style they use, are very different to what we're used to reading now. So we can come to uh, crazy conclusions if we, if we think it's all, you know, if we forget about that. And the classic one I love to think about is I don't know if you ever remember the story of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream about this giant statue. And the giant statue um, was a picture of how God's plan would unfold throughout human history. And he gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a king in Babylon. So that should give you a clue. This is, a, this is about Babylon. It's not about UK. It's not about Israel. It's about Babylon. And the, the head was gold. And that was the Babylonian empire. And then the shoulders and arms were silver, and that was referring to the Medo-Persian Empire, which swept away the Babylonian Empire. And then the belly and thighs were bronze. And yes, it's pretty conclusive. That was the Greek Empire, which swept away the Medo-Persian Empire, based itself in, in Babylon, and took over a huge part of the world. But this is where it falls down, because Westerners always say, in my Bible, it actually says the Roman Empire is the, the legs and the feet of, of iron and clay. But actually, if you look at um, history, the Romans barely got further than Palestine, never really crossed the Euphrates. Only two-thirds of that empire was completely left by the Romans. Um, so it's highly unlikely that the Roman Empire was actually the one referred to. Whereas actually, if you look at the Islamic Caliphate, which came in about 600 AD, that did sweep away the whole of the Greek Empire from India to Turkey, South, uh, sorry, North Africa and Spain, completely the same sort of area took over, which gives us a completely different understanding of God's plan. Uh, and especially if you, if you, like me, like studying end time stuff, it helps you to get you on track rather than coming up with crazy ideas about Donald Trump or the Vatican as being the source of the Antichrist, <laughs> or where the country where the Antichrist will come from. So geography to context is incredibly important. 
Another mistake we can easily make, and people do this all the time, um, I used to go to a church called I-61. Um, I'm not saying they made a mistake, but the, but the verse they based that on was actually in a Jewish context for the Jewish people about the coming, second coming of Christ. Obviously, we can use um, the Bible in our own way, but um, it's a mistake to substitute words like Israel and the church, Zion for Western Christianity, even thinking Jerusalem is very referring to the UK. I went to a um, um, WI meeting where I was a speaker and they sang Jerusalem and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's pastures green and build Jerusalem. And it's, we get this idea that Jerusalem is talking about the church. Actually, Jerusalem's talking about Jerusalem, which I know I've been to, it's in the Middle East. Um, so don't take um, references to Israel or the Jews in the Bible as allegorical statements about the church or your own life you can get a much better understanding of the Old Testament and biblical prophecy if you interpret it more accurately with solid principles which are called hermeneutics but that's a really complicated word uh, but you can dig into that if you want um, so actually Israel and the Jews are still key pivotal players in God's plan for redemption which is to ultimately as Rachel said last week bring everything under Christ's headship um, anti-semitism is unfortunately still rife in the church and it's still a massive issue I've got Jewish friends who are really worried about the current political situation so did God reject the Jews and the church replace it well Romans 11 and verse 1 and then verse 29 should um, solve that one. So Romans 11, 1 and 29. I ask then, did God reject his people, the Jews? By no means, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. So there are a couple of things you can um, fall into when reading the Bible. Hopefully I've flagged those up. But also, some of the richness of the Bible is lost because, you know, we speak English. We don't speak Hebrew. We don't speak Aramaic. We don't speak Greek, um, unless you're incredibly clever. I don't know if anyone here does. And the Hebrew and the Greek can convey far more meaning than the English translations can bring out, I think. Now, I have got some Messianic Jew friends, and their understanding, they speak Hebrew. They go back to the original Hebrew, and their understanding is a lot deeper. Some of the words just is lost in translation and our cultural sort of um, lenses again we really struggle with the idea of God um, making us or allowing suffering whereas in those original cultures the original language it helps it helps them the depth of it to understand that a lot more and also you know some of our Bibles although they are accurately translated most of them they're still words that they weren't allowed to translate because God's word is like a hot potato it's like a, an atomic bomb in, the, in some political circumstances so for example in the King James version the translators for fear of their lives couldn't translate the word baptismo which in the Greek meant immerse into immerse because at the time the current um, theology was that people were baptized as infants with a dab of water on their foreheads or as adults with a dab of water in a font 
and it was worth more than their lives to put Immerse because it was such a hot potato. So they left it like a secret code for people later to crack and just put the Greek word in, baptize, even though it didn't mean anything in the English. So there's lots of things like that. And I suspect that as we go forwards, the new translations will be influenced by political correctness, my favorite subject. There are certain things that they, if they want to sell Bibles, they won't put in. So the advice is to try and get a Bible that is, a, is an accurate translation. It does bring out the depth, if that's what the depths you want to go to. So biblical prophecy, this is another good one. And yes, thousands of scholarly, intelligent people have made a complete mess of it, so what hope have I got? Um, but actually, I'm, I actually don't think God meant it to be difficult, the Bible. That's the viewpoint I come from, because he meant it for people like you and I who weren't particularly you know, theologically trained or anything like that. So I've got a couple of things that hopefully will help. And I think if you can understand, if you want to understand the prophetic framework of the gospel, a good place to start is in the Garden of Eden. And speaking to Satan after the fall, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's in Genesis 3, verse 15. And that's the first prophecy. That's the, they call it the Proto-Evangelion, which is the first sort of message of the gospel um, in prophetic form. So the offspring of the woman at war with Satan would find fulfillment in the patriarchs children of Israel and ultimately by Jesus born of a woman but with no human father who would crush Satan's skull at Golgotha which is meant the place of the skull and whose heel would be struck by a nail on the cross so this Genesis verse is the start of the war of persecution against God's people with Cain soon to kill Abel and it's the start of God's plan to return the human race and all of creation back to the original perfect state. All other prophecies can be seen to radiate out from this first simple starting point. And if you see everything in the light of that first one, it helps it to make a bit more sense. So throughout the Bible, the story of Israel and the Jewish people could be summed up that despite repeated warnings, Israel as a whole community commits apostasy, which is a posh word for saying abandoning their faith and abandoning God. They worship idols, they copied the lifestyles of the pagan nations surrounding them. The people's sins stacked up so high that eventually they went into exile and God said, takes away their land, just like God took away Eden from um, Adam and Eve. And he took away their temple, just like he took away the tree of life from Adam and Eve, as they were no better than the nations surrounding them that they were called out of. So the prophetic framework of the Bible, I, I believe, is far simpler than it can look or be made out to be. And the primary en emphasis of all biblical prophecy can fall into one of three categories. Firstly, it's the immediate context of the prophet that was speaking into, the particular situation in time and space. Secondly, the first coming of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And thirdly, the second coming of Jesus, and the day of the Lord, which is when judgment and justice finally are accomplished. Those three things. If you're ever reading biblical prophecy, try and figure out which one it fits into. So there's one more thing, though, because in Middle Eastern literature, which is different to ours, they make it difficult. 
um, because there's this principle called prophetic foreshortening. So yesterday when I was out walking, I could see the mountains and the mountains look like one mountain range covered in snow. But actually, if you get up to the mountains, you can see some are a lot further back than others and some are much nearer. And that's what happens with prophecy. When God gave a picture to these prophets thousands of years ago, they could see the ridge line of the mountains. They didn't know the distance between them. So in the same prophecy, you might get something about the immediate situation. You get something about the first coming of Christ and you get something about the second coming of Christ, which is why it can get so complicated. And if you understand that, then you can start to understand where it all fits in. And actually, we're really fortunate now because we have had the first coming of Christ. So we know it's only the last bit we have to figure out. And there's, interestingly, far more prophecies about the second coming of Christ than the first. And that's the key why the Jews missed Jesus the first time because of this prophetic foreshortening. They didn't realize there would be two comings. And they thought he would come as a military commander to rescue them as, you know, Isaiah 61 says, um, restoring the, the barren land, oaks of righteousness, all those sorts of things. That's why they missed it. So the last little section, getting fidgety, acting out the gospel in our own lives. That's the most important thing. James 1 verse 22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. So it was a bit of a revelation to me because I was in the mindset that I'm, I'm a sinner because I sin. I didn't realize that I was sin because I'm a sinner and I've lost the, the plot when it comes to carrying God's image into the world. It was a revelation that because of sin, we've abdicated our God-given role as bearers of that image. And when man fell, and lost the right and ability to rule over the world with wisdom and integrity, Satan stepped in and took control. So in a similar vein, when someone doesn't take up their responsibility as a parent, a spouse, a boss, or political leader, then someone else will inevitably exploit the vacuum and no good will come of it. We are keen dog lovers in our family, and Marie is an incredible uh, dog trainer And we always laugh when we see dogs taking their owners for walks because that's like the dog is top dog, alpha male, and the person is like... That's a classic example of that. Um, Have you ever seen children micromanaging their parents? That's another example. Or um, if you work, have you ever seen your boss avoiding difficult situations and not taking their responsibility and all chaos ensues? So we live in a culture of power play, like a giant kid's playground, with people clambering over each other to get up to the top, looking for weaknesses to exploit. So let's try and recognize this when it rears its ugly head in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, and yeah, even in our church. Let's seek to fulfill our own God-given roles and responsibilities, not seeking to bring division, or exploit apparent goal gaps for our own egotistical gains. So a a question for you would be, are there areas of your life where you've abdicated responsibility and others have seen the opportunity to take over? It's a completely different way of looking at sin. It's not about the things you do, naughty but nice things. It's more about, are you taking that responsibility 
that God-given role of being Christ in the world. Another question, are you sometimes tempted to illegitimately usurp someone else's responsibility or area of authority? And have you repented for this? Which is a Christian jargon way of saying, have you said sorry to them and to God? So Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 4, again, Paul, my favorite writer, says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely gentle and humble. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So in summary, we face many obstacles to fully understanding this glorious gospel. The gospel originated in the Middle East 2,000 years ago in a Jewish context. For us Gentiles, non-Jews, we live in a vastly different culture and have to work harder to understand the deeper meanings found in scripture. However, through Jesus' victory on the cross, God's great story of a fallen creation and the restoration of that is firmly on track. So despite the rise and fall of evil empires, World War I, World War II, the Jewish Holocaust, the war on terror, despite all of these things, God is firmly in control and directing the world to its political, military, climatic, social and economic showdown after which Christ will finally return. In the book of Acts, the gospel message of those first Christians to their fellow Jews was this. The Messiah died for our sins in accordance with our scriptures. At his first coming, the Jewish Messiah displayed power, wisdom, and above all, compassion, hugging children, touching lepers, healing cripples, associating with notorious sinners and outcasts, this is our God at street level, the God who loves you and wants to deliver you from your own failings, the things you're enslaved to. If you're hopelessly lost in terms of eternity and in desperate need of a savior, the Jewish gospel is also the universal glorious message to all of creation. So let's not be lazy, but try and dig deeper into its incredible life and death truths attempting to get past these cultural barriers, the interpretation issues, the prophetic riddles, to gain a clearer understanding of our heritage as a people of God. Most importantly, let's act it out in our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, a humble, grateful, outward-looking, worshipping community with God at the center of all we do, able to share with a lost world what an awesome, gracious, heroic and loving God and Savior we have. Thank you. Wow, thanks, John. Great uh, picture painted at the end there. Uh, and so much to take in. That was great. Thank you for the obvious effort that's gone into, into that and sharing. Uh, there will be a podcast looking at, yeah, I've got a thumbs up there. Um, I'm certainly going to be having to listen to that again. I'm 